All right. Take you a while to recover from that one, won't it? Amen? That's some good singing up here, folks. I tell you what. I love, I love worshiping in, in the Lord's church. Amen. Can you amen that? Yep, man, th- th- this time of year just, just floods my memories, fl- floods my mind with memories of, of being a child, being at home in Greenville, Mississippi with all my family and worshiping at First Baptist Greenville and, oh gosh, waking up on Christmas morning and having my grandparents come to the house and uh, just going to candlelight service and having that having that church lit up with candles everywhere and people singing and reading the prophecies. It's just a, it is just a wonderful time of year. Can you amen that? Wonderful time of year. I know that um, this time of year also brings, uh, brings grief to many because uh, we may be spending Christmas for the first time without a loved one or you may have gone through some form of tragedy in your life, things of that nature. Uh, no one understands that better than my, me and my wife and our family. Uh, so just know that you have our prayers through this time, and I don't think we're going anywhere. I think we'll be home uh, for, for Christmas, and y'all know Angie's birthday is on Christmas morning, amen, Christmas Day. So we have a big celebration at our house, if we can get her out of bed, amen, if we can get her out of bed, if we can get her out of bed. She loves to sleep, amen. That's why she's so beautiful, right, honey? That's right. <laughs> I'm digging a hole here on the live feed, amen. <laughs> digging a hole for myself. All right. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible open to uh, Luke chapter 15, we're going to be in the uh, parable of the lost son uh, today. I'm not sure about next Sunday and then Christmas Day. I know we won't be in the prodigal son. We'll probably finish it after the first of the year. And so uh, we may, this may be the last one and, uh, and do the, the, the last couple of parts later. And I may have a special surprise for you uh, on some of these messages after the first of the year. I'm going to leave you in suspense on that. Uh, but there may be a special speaker uh, that, that may pay us a visit and come here and speak. So don't ask questions, okay? Amen? Don't ask questions. Just, just live in the suspense. It's okay. It's, you, you, you know the individual. You've known him for a long time. But anyway, it's just something I've been working on for a while, and I think the Lord is going to deliver. Amen? Okay. You're like, we can't amen that show because we don't know who you're talking about. But anyway, just trust me. So Luke chapter 15. Uh, today we're going to be in verses 11 uh, through, uh, through the, the son coming to himself when he is in, in the pig pen uh, after he has left home. So uh, I always like to try to, to, try to give you a little, a little assistance in remembering where the context of where we are began and why Jesus is teaching these parables. Uh, again, you will hear this out of me until I die or until I am no longer able to, to speak uh, if you want to understand what the Bible <clears throat> is saying, it is absolutely mandatory for you to understand the context of what is being written, okay? So we have to know what the context is. See that? And whoever that is agrees with me. I think that's Ziggy crying back there. Ziggy, Ziggy Wangrud agrees with me. Amen, Ziggy. I hear you. So, so we have to understand and praise God we have babies crying at this church. Praise God. And we have a wonderful new nursery that is this close to being ready to house these babies. It is just going to be wonderful what the Lord has in store for us here. I hear you, Ziggy. I know. It's, it's the nursery is just for you, darling, just for you. So where, where this begins is in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And, and what, what you see, and if you've read the Bible for any amount of time at all, you know that the primary group of, of, church, of church leaders, the primary group of leaders, Jewish leaders, 
that have given Jesus the most amount of grief are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, and so forth. And what they do in this instance in all the Gospels is when Jesus is trying to reach into a people group that, that, that is not favored with the Jewish leadership, they automatically begin to accuse Jesus of, of hanging out with the wrong types of people. And, and making himself unclean in a sense because he's reaching out to these different types of, of groups of people. And so they, they've kind of been shadowing him all through the Gospel of Luke and saying these types of things. And when you look at uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, this is what is said in the Bible. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them, okay? And it's, 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 and it's incredible. What, what Luke is trying to help us see, and I've said this many times, I'm gonna say it again so we get it, because it took me a while to get it, is that the very ones, when, when Jesus came, the very ones who should have received his message, meaning the Jewish leadership, the people that knew the word of God the best, rejected him by and large. And those that received him by and large, that probably should have rejected him by and large, were those that were outside the covenant of God or those that, that did not seem to care about the things of God. And that would be tax collectors and sinners, Gentiles and various people of that, of that, of that kind. But what you see is just the opposite. You see them having ears to hear what Jesus says and you see the Jewish leadership rejecting what Jesus says. By and large, all through the scripture, Luke, Luke is, I mean, all, all the gospels testify to that. And so what, what Jesus does is he, is he teaches them three parables. And we've gone through these over the past several weeks, and the, par, the, the lost son is so long, I'm just digging into a little bit, little, bit, little bit more deeply. But it's the shepherd and the lost sheep, and then it's the woman and the lost coin, and then it's the father and the lost son. And what he does, what Jesus does, he does two separate things in here is, is the audience and just, just trying to figure out where you are in the scheme of things in this is that he tries to give us each perspective, the perspective of every person, each one of these parables. If you're the shepherd, what is the last thing in the world you're supposed to do with one of your sheep? Lose it. If you're a sheep, what do you not want to be? Lost. So Jesus, by telling the parable, he forces you to look and take both perspectives. If you're the shepherd, you don't want to lose a sheep, and if you're a sheep, you don't want to be lost. And so in, by doing that, he forces you to internally dialogue in your own heart saying, who am I in this story? Or if I were the shepherd, if I were the sheep, how would I want this to work out? The same thing with the lost coin. I mean, if we're the woman, what do we not want to lose? We don't want to lose the coin. And if we're the coin, we can't do anything if we're the coin, right? Because we don't have arms and legs and a mouth. If we're lost, no one can find us but a human being or somebody that knows that's looking for me to try to find me where I am. And then finally, with the, with the parable of the lost son, imagine that, dads. How many of us want to be in that position? where we have a family farm, where labor, where our productivity and our stability of that farm continuing on for generations depends on whether or not our sons specifically step up in that leadership role to continue the farm on, on into future generations. How many of us want one of our sons to decide, hey, I wanna cash out and leave? 
How many of us want that to happen? Zero. Zero. And the lost son. How many of us want, wants what happens to the lost son? If we're that son that leaves home and goes out, and what we're going to study today, how many of us want to be out there hanging in the breeze with no one to help us? How many of us want to be in that position? None. So, so that's what Jesus is helping us. This is all like, like, like spiritual parables to help us put ourselves in those situations to understand that it's our responsibility to go after these folks that are not in covenant with God. Because we were once that lost person. We were once that straying sheep. We were once that lost coin. We were once that lost son. And God made sure, God made sure that somebody came after us to get us or put it in the heart of the person that had strayed to come back as we will see today. These are... These are powerful. I understand why Jesus used these parables, because they are, they are just powerful. I mean, they reach into your heart, and they just make you grapple with the reality of where, of where am I in this story, as we will see today. So join me in this parable again today in Luke, in Luke 15 and the prodigal son. So last week, we looked at the younger son abandoning his family, and we'll just read those couple of verses, then we'll jump into the verses for today. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, so he divided his property between them. Now, we, we talked about that for the, entire, for the entire message last week, and this is just one of those situations that just, just the, the way you come about realizing the struggle of what is going on here is to put yourself in that position as a dad and a farm and having a business and your youngest son coming to you and say, hey, I, I want to I cash out my share of the estate and I want to go my own way. I want to be out from under parental authority and, we, and I threw a little 18-year-old stuff in there because that's probably how old this, this young man was. And so he basically wants his dad, who is still alive, to basically pretend that he is dead and cash out his youngest son's share of the estate, which would have been one-third of the entire value of the estate. That's a big deal. And go his own way. So let's pick up in verse 13. <clears throat> so we know the father divided his property between them. We know that's where that ended in verse Let's see, uh, the younger son, let's see, father, give me my share, and he divided his property between them, verse 12 coming into 13. So verse 13 goes this, says this, not long after that, not long after the father gives him his share, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there, say that word with me, squandered. It's a horrifying word, is it not? horrifying word, squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed what? Pigs, swine, hogs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? 
and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I want you to, I want you to grab on to that today. That, that the whole goal of the message today is for you and me and all of us to understand where this young man arrived after he left home. Because this is the turning point. This is the turning point in the parable. This is the moment in the son's life as the moment came in my life back in the 90s in Jackson, Mississippi, where your whole worldview, your whole understanding of everything in your life and all the decisions that you have made and what you thought was the right way to go and the right thing to do all comes crashing down on top of you. And it's forced you, it forces you, and and I, I can't emphasize that enough, it forces you into a decision to make. What do I do now that I'm here? What do I do? So let's break it down. Let me get my clock out because I can go on a tangent on on this part of the Scripture. Not long after that, I don't know about you, but when the Scripture says that, I am one aggravated individual. Are you? Because I want to know how long. Amen? Amen? How many of you are type A personality, if you know what that means? Calendars, schedules, watches, I I mean, everything has to be just like that. Now, people that that think they know me, oh, Shelby, you are not like that at all. Yes, I am. On the inside of my mind, there's an internal clock, there's a task list, and I wake up every day, and I've got certain things that I have got to get done in a timely fashion, or I feel like the day was wasted. Okay, so when the scripture said, this scripture is in here to bug me. I I believe that with all my heart. When it says, not long after that, I want to know, how long? I mean, God, give it, give it to me. You know how long it was, how long was it? But we don't know. How long? Weeks? Months? How long was this? Give us some idea. But unfortunately, we don't, we don't know. But we know this, we know this much. We know that there had to be some time allowed for the father to figure out what the estate was worth. We knew that that had to happen. I mean, do you have any idea what is involved in planning an estate, much less calculating the values of certain things in the ancient Near East in the time of Christ? I mean, I'm I'm sure it was as complicated as it is today without the advent of technology You know, everything being done by snail mail. I mean, I can tell you when my mother died, she died without a will. So the estate went into what's called probate. Who here suffered through that process? Probate, all right, which can be good or bad depending on the judge, who your lawyer is, how good your family members get along, et cetera, et cetera. It could take months. And back then in the time of Christ, as I said, all you had was snail mail. So Lord knows how long it took him to to dig all that out. It probably lasted a few weeks, months, who knows? Maybe there were talks that we don't know about during this time. I mean, I'm sure word got out on the farm 
about what was going on. I'm sure the older son had to be brought in and a lengthy discussion take place about the future and how much value the farm would lose when cashing out the other son portion. I, I mean, this was a big deal. This was a big deal. Most people have some idea of what their estate is worth, but a speculative ballpark number is far different than actually having to figure out what the liquidity is of your property and assets. It is a serious, serious, in-depth process that is going on that the father is doing for this son that wants to leave. And he does it, and he gives it to him, and then suddenly, as expected, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. We have a saying in Mississippi, and I'm sure you got something similar up here, but we'd say, man, that went from zero to 100 in one sentence, you know? It's like, it's like everything's calm and everything's kind of understood, you know, where we're going and what's happening. Then all of a sudden something happens that just ramps it up from like zero to 100. And that's what that verse just did. And speaking as an older prodigal, I can tell you while you're in the middle of all of that, while you're in the middle of all that, the, the getting the money and, and, and the wild living and having all the fun and doing that, it seems, to, it seems to go on forever and there seems to be no end to it. But once it's extinguished, when it's over, you look back and it seems like a blip on the screen. And the thing that you, or the thing that I and the thing that this prodigal son probably begins to realize here in just a little while is the amount of damage, the amount of damage that you can do to yourself with one foolish, impulsive decision. Does everybody understand that? You're looking at a man that did it multiple times. I made foolish, stupid decisions multiple times from the time I was about 19 to the time I was about 24, and those decisions led me into collateral damage that took me, I, you could arguably say, I'm still kind of feeling the consequences of some of the mistakes that I made. Back. Now, God has, God has completely restored me. I'm not saying that. But sometimes there is damage that you do to yourself during certain time periods that, that, that follows you your whole life. And that has ripple effect in relationships, in family, in friends, in businesses, and all kinds of stuff. So here he is damaging himself. I mean, think about the number of years it took for the family farm to build up its value and then a third of it's wiped out with the foolish decisions of one family member. That's a valuable lesson that can be learned, learned from this parable. Valuable lesson, valuable lesson. That's why we adults that have been down the road of foolishness, like the one preaching to you today, amen, that have been down the road of foolishness, try so hard to equip the next generation away from such decisions, but more times than not, everybody, and you're gonna, you're gonna finish this sentence for me, they're gonna do it the what way? The hard way. Their own way, which is the hard way. Because we're just a bunch of idiots and we don't understand, right? 
right? You ever feel like that with your, with your kids, with those you're trying to advise? I'm just a, an idiot, and I don't understand, you know, and I got news for you. Oh, yes, we do. Can I get a witness? Oh, do we understand. Way more than I ever cared to understand, do I understand. I wish I didn't understand some of the things that I understand. So, he got together, say it with me, all he had. And there's the million-dollar question. How much was it all? <clears throat> there's no way to really estimate. And I know that, that some of the stuff that I'm giving you is in, the, is, is in the realm of speculation, but I believe that it is safe and sober speculation. I don't believe I'm giving you some outlandish estimates here. Um, Jesus, most of his parables were given from real-life circumstances. Was this a real-life circumstance? We don't know that from the text, but I'm sure that in, the, that in the chronicles of history that there has been a young son that has gone to his father and requested for all his stuff and left and then fell upon hard times. I'm sure that's happened. Certainly happened here. So he gathered together all he has, and how much was that? There's no way to know, but I did take a little time and do a little research, and I, I would suggest that the man, the young man probably left with at least $500,000 in today's dollars. 500 grand. Who here wants 500 grand? Give me a witness. Yeah, don't lie, Baptist. I know you want it. My hand would be up as well. $500,000. So I guess he has paper money and coins and other types of valuables, maybe a bag of jewels, some of his best tools, some farm animals for travel and use. But the important thing to remember is at the time he left and left his family, one third of the wealth of the family was what he walked away with. So his room is empty. His clothes are gone. Anything that was his is now gone. And whatever the father liquidated to complete the younger son's share of the estate is gone for how long? Yeah. Forever. So he sets off. Next it says that he gathered together all he had and he sets off. And, and, and this is the first time in this study, this is the first time that I have ever seen something here that I haven't before, and it could be completely wrong, so let me tell you, I could be completely wrong about this, but it certainly seems possible that this is going on in this young man's mind. What is the implication that he sets off and that Jesus uses a distant country? That is significant to me, more significant than it ever has been significant to me. Not only does he not want to be with his family anymore and is treating them like they are dead by requesting his share of their estate while they are alive, now he leaves, and I mean, I mean brothers and sisters, he don't just leave, he cuts a trail where? Yeah, a different country. That's not an exaggeration for effect. Jesus says he left for a different country. Now, Put yourself again in the family's position, okay? The father and we, we, mother's never mentioned, but the father and the, and, and the farm, he doesn't just move across town, right? You're not gonna bump into him when you go into town to the farmer's market. He ain't gonna be around. He's not gonna come by your house and sit down and catch you up on what's going on with his life since he left the farm. There's no email. There's no phones, no way to communicate except for whatever rudimentary mail system was in existence back then, and I'm not an expert on that, so I can't tell you. So he is gone, 
And you, you could say, like if we were going to say that in today's time, we would say if, he was, if the setting was America, we might say he left the state. Or we might say if it's a different country, he left the what? United States. He left the United States of America. He left his country, went to a distant land. So in his mind, in this, in this prodigal, and I am trying to build this up as big as I can because nowhere have I ever read. It has been built up. And I believe that he, that he is abandoning his family and this hardship that he hits for, for this parable to have the right kind of punch into your heart. It has got to be built up how far gone this young man was. He was gone, and in his mind, and in his heart, was he coming back? No. Ties had been cut. Now, here's the part where I may be wrong, but it certainly seems like this is possible, the distant country part. It is almost like he wanted to sever ties so deep and so wide that maybe he was secretly desiring to no longer be Jewish and reject his heritage. Distant country implies Gentile land. Distant country implies Gentile land, a people outside the, cover, the covenant. So not only did he want to be away from parental restraints and the family farm restraints, not only did he want to be with that, perhaps, perhaps, I'm saying perhaps, which means I realize I could be wrong, perhaps he wants to be free of what? Religious constraints. How familiar does that sound? Especially in this day and time. How familiar does that sound? Well, religion constrains you. Yeah, for good reason, amen? <laughs> Free from the constraints of God and his people, perhaps. So there he goes to this distant country. And there does, I mean, I mean the nightmare goes from, from bad to worse. Not only does he leave home, not only does he go to a distant country, it goes from bad to worse. Worse, He takes everything that his family had worked their entire life for, and in five or six words, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Squandered his wealth in wild living. And let me tell you something, that, that when I... When I became a Christian and, and I began to study the scripture and I found Luke chapter 15 and I found the story of the prodigal son. I think I've told you all this before. If I have, just, just humor me. Um, I remember stumbling across this parable and I had heard it before. I mean, everybody that has spent any amount of time in the church has heard of the parable of the prodigal son. But, <laughs> but after I became a Christian and I got back in church and I was you know, grieving over the hell, literal hell, that I had put my family through for years, uh, living like a heathen, destroying my family's reputation, being arrested for DUI multiple times, uh, the insurance money that I had cost, just all of that. I mean, all of that. I read this and I'm like, God, God knew me. God, God knows me. This is my story. <laughs> And this story 
is way older than 30, 32 years old. Amen? This story was written before I was even born. God knows me. And it was one of the first times in my life that I can remember reading the Bible and thinking to myself, God really does know me. He knows me so well, he knew my sin before I was going to commit it. And still, still reached out to me and brought me home and saved me and gave me a life. Amen? Amen. Knowing all that. That's the heart of the Father in this story. I mean, he knew he wasn't going to go do charity work with his money. Amen? I mean, he knew that. He knew that the, that the motivations and the desires of his heart could, couldn't be good wanting to cash out at 18. How many people have you known that cashed out at 18 and become philanthropists? I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know any. And I don't mean to be judgmental, but I, I don't know any that, that, that have been that young and think that much about helping others. They're, they're, I'm sure they're out there, but I haven't seen them. So... He squandered his wealth and wild living. Now, literally what that word means, literally what that word means, diaskorpizo, in the Greek, it means to scatter one's money loosely over an area. So in a metaphorical sense, now this is not what he did, okay, but in a metaphorical sense, he had a bag with all of his inheritance in a bag, and he took what this what this word basically means is that he, he walked around various places with this bag of money and he took that money and what did he do with it? Just, just, threw it? just threw it away. Just threw it away. That's what that word means. And basically, basically that's, that, that's what he did. I mean, we have a saying in, in our land that, that whenever somebody has wasted money, we say, man, I could have taken that money and done well with it. Flushed it down the what? Yeah, I mean, that's basically what he did. He, he, he squandered what his family had given to him, and, and I can so, so relate to this passage. It just sounds horrible because it is horrible. It's horrible taking what was given to you and squandering it. It's the idea that you allowed your carnality and your impulsiveness to overwhelm your self-restraint and you spent all your money in the most foolish ways you could possibly imagine. And that's how the Bible says he spent it. He squandered it on wealth and wild living. Now, I know I could write a book on that. Some of you could probably write a book on that. But we're not going to write a book on that, right? We're not going to write a book on that. I don't want to write a book on that. I don't want anybody getting ideas, you know, from the preacher about how to spend your life in wild living, okay? I give broad generalities, but I don't go into specifics unless you come to my office and you ask me and I'll tell you. But even then I'll use some restraint because I don't, I don't want you to know all my sins that I committed because I'm not, that, I'm not that man anymore, amen? I'm not him anymore. But wild living, wild living, so what did this young man do? And his, I mean, how do you go through the, 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 the speculative $500,000 in just a few months? I mean, well, number one, traveling to a distant country wasn't cheap, right? That's not cheap. 
I mean, he had to live somewhere. He had, to, he, he had left the, tr- the safety and trust of the family farm where dad took care of him and all the bills, where the, all the servants looked out for him and made sure he was taken care of. Now he was in a distant country where no one knew him and he had nobody to fall back on, nobody to take care of him. He probably hung out with people that took advantage of him due to his, due to his wealth. He probably fell victim to scams and liars and thieves. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but, but I have noticed through, through my time that, that people who stay intoxicated and party all the time don't make the best decisions. Have you noticed that? They don't make the best decisions because they're not grounded in reality. That's one of the reasons why drinking and drugs and those types of things is heavily regulated, even by the civil authority, is because they are mood-altering. They make you think things that you wouldn't normally think if you were sober. They usher in this euphoria. You know what that is, right? This, this, this great feeling that everything is just going to be great and that everybody's my friend and I can just trust everybody that I come across that smiles at me. Is that true? No. All caps, underlined, bold, and red. No, it's not. Impulsiveness overindulgence in every aspect imaginable, total lack of self-control, total lack of consideration of others, driven by the lust of the flesh at every turn, lies, built upon lies, built upon lies, built upon lies, built upon lies. That's, that's where he was. That's where he was. That's where I was. And, and I, there has not been another time in my life, I'm telling you this straight, straight from my heart, there has not been another time in my life that I have been as miserable in every way imaginable than I was during that time. And I can tell you he was the exact same way. Completely miserable with his entire life. So verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So here's a great question for us that this, that this parable begs. Everybody, everybody that was listening to it that day would think the same thing. Have you ever been flat, busted, broke before? I'm talking flat, busted, broke. Not a dime to your name. Nothing to sell. No money in the account not knowing where your next meal is coming from, not knowing that you have a place to live, can't get gas, sold everything. Have you ever gone hungry? Have you ever starved? Most Americans would say no. Most of us have no idea, most of us have no idea what this is like. I have never experienced that before. Even when I was lost, even when I was out on my own, I still, there were still a few folks around that, that, I, that I, 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 was, I never went hungry and I never spent every single dime I had. I still had credit cards, amen? That's a joke. Because that's not really money, amen? You got to pay those back. Can I get a witness? Okay, just so everybody knows. But he spent everything. Just spent everything. He overbought. He got mixed up with liars and thieves that know, know, know exactly what they're doing and they take full advantage of your ignorance and inexperience. I mean, most fathers, what do most fathers do? Most fathers, and I know there's exceptions, but most fathers put money in your pockets, right? They don't take money out of your pockets. 
Most fathers do. That's what this man had experienced. He knew, he knew that his daddy had put money in his pockets. All the time he knew him, he knew he was well-fed. He knew he was taking care of money, went into his pockets, not out. But now he's around people that have emptied his pockets. And now he has spent everything. And then, now that everything's spent, oh boy, God's sovereignty comes into play. Amen? God's sovereignty comes into play. What happens next in the distant country that he went to? What, what breaks out in the land? Famine. There was a severe famine in that whole country. The timing of this is strategic. Strategic. Just like me, when I got arrested for DUI that last time, and I know that probably freaks y'all out. That was a long time ago, okay? That was in the early 90s. There's a lot of distance back then, amen? So don't be freaked out. I'm not that guy anymore, but I use it in the testimony so that you know I'm a real person and I've really had problems, okay? And God has seen me through all those. His was famine, that's what mine was. His was famine, mine was the state of, state of Mississippi, amen? The state of Mississippi, so they helped me. So this famine comes and this timing, and right at the moment the man, young man runs completely out of money, the distant country that had been so fun-filled now experiences a catastrophe. Famine, and not just a famine, a severe famine. Food is running out. Starvation begins to set in throughout the area, and the young man is broke. And depending on how much you weigh and how healthy you are, you can live somewhere between 30 and 60 days without food. you got to have water, but you can live somewhere between 30 and 60 days without food. So things have really taken a turn for him, and the timing of this famine just seems divine to me. Divine. I mean, nothing, nothing on earth will get your attention like hunger. Hunger. Very few of us know it, but nothing will get your attention like that. Nothing. The only hunger that our family has ever experienced was always self-inflicted. We have never been without food in my lifetime, but there is no motivating factor like hunger. The thought that there is no food to eat would be horrifying. I mean, could you imagine not being able to feed your children? Could you imagine not being able to feed your family, not being able to feed the elderly, not being able to feed, to feed people in nurse? Could you imagine not having food, a whole nation without having food? And that's where this young man was. So the young man, the verse says, began to be in need. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess. Did you catch that humor? I'm going to hazard a guess. I'm going to guess that this was a first, was the first time for this young teenager. He's never been where he is before. Never been. First time he's ever been there. First time he had experienced betrayal by those he had spent his money with. First time he had empty pockets. First time he had no one to serve him a meal. First time he had no food to prepare. This young man was in the most desperate position he had ever been in in his entire life. And whose fault was it? Yeah. That's the beauty of this whole parable. His fault. So... Verse 15, he hired, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
So he runs out of everything, runs out of all his money. A famine hits the country. He gets desperate enough to ask for work. And the job he gets is feeding pigs. Anybody all ever fed pigs before? Raise your hand. Oh, that's ridiculous. You've got to be kidding me. That is amazing. I figured there wouldn't be a hand in the house. Wow. All right, how many of you were in his position and fed pigs? Let me ask that question. Now, no hands. Okay, good. I got my illustration back. Wow. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Now, it seems like this would be the first indication that he was beginning to come out of this delusional ego trip that he was on. His daddy had not raised a total fool. He knew enough to know he could get a job, and thank God he found one, but the job he was given was not exactly the most glamorous. He was sent to the fields to feed pigs. Now, what's interesting about pigs is that pigs were off-limits for Jews, and this is one of the reasons why, I think, one of the evidences in the text that I think he was trying to disavow Judaism is because God put him in a pig pen. That just seems too coincidental to me, that God was trying to remind him that he was his God and that he was a Jew and that he was a covenant child and he did have a family that did love him. That's just too ironic to me that he was put in a pig pen. Too ironic. Leviticus 11, 1 through 8 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to these people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. Verse 7, and the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. Now, your question is, why is that? My answer to you is, I have no idea. No one knows. Some people try to point back to Noah and the ark and sacrificial animals. I, I don't know. It could be. You can read up on that yourself and come tell me. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, God forbade them to have anything to do with pigs, but yet this young man in his moment of desperation, the only job he could find was feeding pigs. Now, he was a Jewish boy. I'm hurrying. I know it's 1115. He was a Jewish boy who had been raised on a farm. He knew God's word regarding pigs as unclean animal. There's no coincidence there. And this moment was strategically orchestrated by God so that this young man would be deeply convicted of his sin. All the way in this distant country, after spending all his money, a severe famine hits, the only job he can find leads him directly to care for the very animals he has been raised from birth to know he's not supposed to. That's not a coincidence. That's God's love. And that don't make sense to a lot of us. Because I think a lot of us don't understand him. But if you don't think he will rub your nose in something to wake you up, you are wrong. He will send you to the pig pen and make you shovel pig you know what to wake you up and help you see that he loves you and he's your God. And he'll leave you there until you figure it out. Amen? Are you talking to somebody who's been there? I've been there. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything when he came to his senses. <laughs> I love those words. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? He really was. That's not, that's not hyperbole. The man was starving. The, 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 the parable clearly says that. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. <laughs> wow. <laughs> At that moment, that boy realized Mom and Daddy wasn't around to blame anymore, were they? His entire situation was his fault. And at that moment, at that moment, I believe that young man realized that where he was was his fault. There was no one else to blame, and at that moment, he took full responsibility for his own actions and his own sin. And he remembered the face that popped up in his mind was his dad and the farm and being home. And he knew, just like I knew back in 1996, I don't know how this is going to work out. I ain't got a clue how it's going to work out. But it sure ain't working out good for me because I'm with the pigs. I'm with the slop. God, is, God has taken me about as low as I can go other than death. He has taken me all the way down. But you know what I can do? You know what I can do? I can go home. I can go home and be a slave for my dad. That's how you know that young man came to repentance. There's no ultimatum. There's no bargaining. There's no this. There's no that. He comes up with a dialogue in his mind. He rehearses what he's going to say in his mind while he's in the pen to crawl back on his hands and knees before his father and beg to be his servant. I wonder how many of us have had that heart toward God. How many of us willing to do anything? I'm talking anything for the kingdom of God. Anything. Crawl on your hands and knees before God and say, God, please save me and use me any way you choose. That's normally not what we do. We go before God with a list and we say, God, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. What you see in the heart of the prodigal son is the exact opposite. You see a man that came to himself, realized his own sin, realized his own mistakes, realized his rebellion. God had to put him in the pig pen to get him there, but he got there. And he went home. And you'll have to get the rest of it next week. Amen? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for this parable that has, through the years, been a constant reminder to me of your goodness toward me and your goodness toward my family. Father, I thank you so much for putting Jesus on this earth and having him die on that cross that we may have life in his death and resurrection. And Father, as we come into this Christmas season, I beg and I plead that we may see conversions through this body, that we may see conversions in this country, that we may see a return to you, Lord, unlike we've ever seen before. That people would realize who you are and love you for what you've done, not necessarily for what you're gonna do, but for what you've done, because you've done enough. You've done enough, you've saved us. What more do we want? All the eternal riches and glory are in him. And you have given us your son, and for that we are eternally grateful. And Lord, I pray that if anyone does not know him today, that perhaps through this story, through your conviction of your spirit, Lord, that they will come to you in repentance and faith and believe in you for salvation. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.